This morning's scripture reading comes from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. The king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Good morning, everybody, and happy Advent. Now, Advent is not celebrated in every church tradition, but most people have the sense that Advent is a season of excitement, but it's also a season of waiting. Advent is really about waiting for the Advent, the coming of our Savior. And we celebrate it every year, not because we don't know what happens at the end of the season. It's kind of like on Good Friday, we all pretend like, oh, he's dead. He's really dead. And then Sunday, he rose. You know, it's, it's not because we don't know what's happening. It's because we have to remember how momentous it was that it did happen, and that there was a time when it had not happened in the past. And so Christmas takes on this sense of waiting, usually in terms of waiting for presents, waiting for family to come into town, waiting to eat good food, waiting to celebrate all of December. And there's like a turning point in your life where you go from the waiting and how long it feels like it takes to it snuck up on you and you can't believe how short it was in the lead up to Christmas. My, my longest waiting, though, had nothing to do with a present or anything. My longest waiting was that I was going to propose to Laura on Christmas Day. And I'd had the ring, and, if you, and the guys in here will understand this. Once you have the ring, it's like that's the only thing you can think of. It's like burning a hole in your pocket. You must get rid of the ring so you don't lose it. Something doesn't happen to it. And so we go through all the Christmas morning stuff, and everybody knows, except Laura, what's coming later in that day, and we're just waiting. And, and um, so we, we had bought a house that Laura was going to live in. And we had just closed, and it was just set up, and so I had to figure out some excuse to get her to go over there. And so my excuse was, hey, I went over and decorated the place for Christmas. Well, the, everybody else wanted to go at that point, and Laura wanted everybody to go to see it. It was like, no, nobody else gets to see it. Whoa, whoa, hey, why? You know, I mean, just us. We get over there, and it all makes sense afterwards what it was that we were waiting for, what was building up for it. But the season of Advent is not exactly the same waiting as something great that's going to happen. It's also a waiting for something bad to come to an end. Right? There's two different kinds of waiting. There's the anticipation of something great, 
But there's also the anticipation that something terrible or something miserable is going to finally come to an end. Advent is more properly the second kind of waiting, waiting for something that is almost unbearable to end. In fact, you might remember the way C.S. Lewis puts it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Tumnus says, always winter, but never Christmas. That's Advent. That's the season of Advent. And so this morning, as we kick off our Advent series, I want to talk about waiting, and, and specifically waiting for a king, waiting for a king who is coming. Now, the, the popular narrative of humanity, if you go far enough back, humanity begins in a cave. But not really, G.K. Chesterton points this out in Everlasting Man, humanity doesn't actually start in a cave, but the first thing we know about humanity begins in a cave. The archetypal caveman, like the Geico commercial, so easy a caveman could do it, this kind of brutish and dumb prefiguring of humanity that lived in a cave. But Chesterton points out, none of the evidence that we have of people in caves would speak to that kind of existence. What we have in caves is actually things that speak to creativity and art and community life and expression and communication, so much so that you might actually think human existence didn't start in a cave, but in a garden with the dignity of creation, with the ability to communicate. In fact, the biblical story is not that it started in a cave, but that it started in the throne room of God Almighty. The Garden of Eden, which was created to be a place where God came and walked with his people, and his people would be co-rulers with him. So the beginning of humanity actually speaks to something that is so deep in the soul of human beings and in our cultures. If you think about how many great stories there are of a true and wonderful, just king who would come. I mean, the easiest is to think about King Arthur. King Arthur is kind of a myth that is in every culture of a true king who rules justly and brings peace to the land. And, you know, in the ancient Arthurian myths, his tombstone doesn't just say, King Arthur, from, to, born, died. It's the once and future king. That there's something about him or Gilgamesh, our most ancient epic, that there would be a king who would come and fulfill all the longings for what life should be like. The Jews had their own part of this story waiting for God's promised king. And throughout all of human history, if you start at the first page of the Bible and go all the way up to the end of the Old Testament, there's this haunting, waiting feeling that at some point, the misery of sinful humanity will end, and the great just king will come. Amen. So this week, the first week of our Advent series, we're, every week we're talking about this coming of the king. This week we're talking about the glorious king, and each week we're going to look at a person who was waiting for the king to come. And so you might have thought it was kind of odd that we're reading a psalm during Advent. You don't usually read psalms, you usually read from the Gospels. But since we just did a whole year in the Gospels, I thought, maybe we'll go somewhere else in the Bible and think about the coming king. This week, the glorious king is awaited by Israel's greatest king, King David. He is waiting not just for a king of Israel, but a king of the universe. Next week, we'll talk about the humble king, 
that Zechariah and the prophets were waiting for. That Zechariah says, he will come to you and he will be inconspicuous, riding on a donkey, humble and lowly. In the third week, we'll look at Daniel's prophecy about the eternal king, someone who is higher and greater than humanity, somebody that God the Father hands over an eternal kingdom to. And on Christmas Eve, we will look at the peacemaking king that Isaiah prophesies about. He will bring peace between God and his people forever. So this morning, the glorious king. And as you go throughout the history of Israel, you're waiting for a king, and finally, during Samuel's lifetime, the people are grumbling, all the other nations have a king, and we want a king. And this is just to show that human nature doesn't change that much, where kids, all the other kids have this, and I don't. The Israel's, everybody else has a king, and God's like, you don't know what you're asking for. They get a king, Saul, who is a earthly king. He's a head taller than everybody else. He is a man of war. He is the greatest of his tribe, and he is a total disaster as a king. So much so that before he even starts to decline physically and in his kingship, God has Samuel anoint somebody else to be king. But do you remember how this happens? They bring David's brothers out to meet Samuel for the anointing. And Jesse, who is David's father, has his seven brothers in order. And they are very tall, very strong, very prominent, very experienced in war. And they don't even bring David to this because he's the youngest and the smallest and the most unremarkable. And Samuel is looking at the brothers and he even thinks, well, this this definitely looks like a king. But God whispers in his spirit, God does not look at the outside. God looks at the heart. So he goes down the line. Nope, 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 nope. Is there anybody else? Everybody kind of embarrassed looks at each other like, I mean, there's the youngest, David, tending the sheep. And Samuel says, send for David. And when David comes, Samuel anoints him that he will be a king. And not just any king. This is going to be the zenith of Israel's kingship. He is going to bring peace to his people. He is going to uh, get all of their enemies and kick them out of the promised land. He's going to set up true worship for God. But most of all, and what David is known for, is that he would be a man after God's own heart. He would be a man who is the emblem or the image of God to his people. Now, I just have to ask, This phrase gets thrown around so much. He's a man after God's own heart. What does that even mean? What does it mean for David to be a man after God's own heart? And and why? Because when you look at David's life, David did all kinds of terrible things. David did all kinds of things that were sinful. He was adulterous. He was murderous. He was disobedient to God. In fact, if you read through the David story, you realize that the Bathsheba incident is the one that we always talk about. But actually, the biggest thing that David did that was wrong in the eyes of the Lord was he took a census of his people when God explicitly told him not to. So David has all these mess-ups in his life. What was it that made him a man after God's own heart? Most people know the hymn Amazing Grace. In fact, it is probably the number one hymn in the English language, but most people do not know that when Amazing Grace was first published, it was released in 1779 in the Olney Hymns by John Newton, 
It was called, it was just hymn number 41 in book one of the only hymns, and it was called Faith's Review and Expectation. Okay, and then some great PR person came along and was like, that will never sell. We've got to do something a little spiffier than that. We'll call it Amazing Grace. It was called Faith's Review and Expectation. If you look at the only hymns, what, the first book of these hymns that were written by John Newton and William Cooper for their congregation, the first book is 140 hymns just going through the Bible. So there's hymns about Genesis, Exodus, there's one about almost every book, all these incidents. I mean, just pedestrian stuff that happened in the Bible, they had a hymn for it. And they would write about Joshua and Moses and the law and the kings and good, bad, and ugly. And so it was a way of teaching people the Bible through these hymns. They're narratives. They have lessons in them. And number 41 in book one is a meditation on 1 Chronicles 17, 16 through 17, which says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, O Lord, who am I and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? When John Newton read that verse, he he saw what it was that made David a man after God's own heart. He, He saw that David actually understood amazing grace better than anybody in the Bible leading up to Jesus. He understood what is so important. Chesterton puts it this way. A great man knows that he is not God. And the greater he is, the better he knows it. David was a great, great man because he understood who God was and who he was. He understood the greatness of God. He understood that he didn't have anything of his own if God had not given it to him. He understood his own sin. He understood his own weakness. He understood his own need for forgiveness at a level that perfectly matches what Jesus came and showed us in his life and his death on the cross. You know, David also understood that that his story follows the pattern of stories that God loves to tell. You know, there's there's a saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. You know, that that's so true in the Bible. God tells the same narrative story arc over and over and over and over again. God loves to tell stories where you start out with goodness or with innocence. You descend into a cave or a fall, and then you're resurrected up into redemption and glory at the end. In fact, we could spend all afternoon just tracing this through every story. Humanity goes through it. Individuals go through it. The nation of Israel goes through it. We have been through it. You start out good. Sin brings you down to the depths of the human condition, and then God rescues you and redeems you again. This was David's own story. David started out pretty good. I mean, killed Goliath, anointed king, and then everything was a disaster for years. He's going to be the king, but he's on the run from the current king. And in fact, David's story takes a literal turn into a real cave where he is hiding from Saul who's trying to kill him. And it's in this cave that David writes some of his great psalms. In fact, we have three psalms that the superscription tells us this was written in the cave of Adullam where he was waiting 
and hiding out from Saul. In Psalm 34, for example, we get from the depths of the cave, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is he who takes refuge in him. That psalm kind of reminds me of what Spurgeon said, when you find yourself in the deep, dark cellars of life, look for God's choicest wines. David, from the depth of his suffering, in the middle of his story, cried out in Psalm 57, your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. Our psalm for this morning exhibits something just incredible about David if you look throughout history. He was a great king, but he was awaiting a greater king. No kings do that in the ancient world. No kings do that. I've been reading on the Assyrian kings, and these guys are the original megalomaniac kings. I mean, if you read the inscriptions of what these guys were writing about themselves about the same time as David, they weren't saying things like, be exalted, O God. They were saying things like, Ashurbanipal, God's servant on the earth, ruler of nations, crusher of kingdoms, most awesome and wonderful person in history. That's the kind of stuff they were writing about themselves. And David, who is this great king, is writing things like, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all who dwell in it, he founded it on the seas and he established it on the rivers. Who could ascend the hill of the Lord? Who could possibly stand in God's holy place? Who is it that has clean hands and a pure heart? David would be the first one to say, not me, not me. Who, who could lift up their soul to him? without being found false. Who who is it that doesn't swear deceitfully? That person will receive blessing from the Lord, righteousness from God for his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek God, who seek the face of the Lord. And then this psalm takes this bizarre turn. Picture yourself as David or in David's court. He is the king of Israel, and he starts to say, lift up your heads, O gates, And be lifted up, ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. This would be treasonous if it wasn't the king who was saying it. He's looking forward to the day when a truer and greater, more glorious, more holy, more honorable, more just, more powerful king takes his throne in Israel. This is so insightful into David's heart. He he is awaiting Someone who God promises will sit on the throne of David forever. You know, Jesus gets into this scuffle with the Pharisees over David because the Pharisees venerated David. I mean, it was Moses and David. That, you couldn't get any better than those guys. And, and they have this quandary in mind. Jesus is saying things like, he's a great king. And they're like, are you saying that you're greater than David? And Jesus says to them, he is both greater than David and David's son, which for them is unfathomable. How can you be somebody's son and be greater than they are? And it's like he's the person that David's whole life was pointing to. Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, the king of glory. In this psalm, we see David awaiting this king who is 
greater than he is, he is holier than he is, and he is eminently coming to Israel. David, more than anybody in the Bible, is stoking people's imaginations for what this true king will be like. You start to get a sense from David that this isn't exactly the king that everybody expected. In Psalm 24, we have a glorious, wonderful, holy, mighty king. But one psalm before that, in Psalm 23, David writes that this king is also a shepherd, a low position. Just like David himself had been a shepherd, this was not a a rung to climbing the social ladder in Israel. This was a profession that you would not want to be unless you had to be. This king is also a shepherd. This king is taking his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death. This king is preparing a meal like a servant for the people that he's leading. This is starting to sound like a bizarre kind of king. If you back up one psalm earlier, in Psalm 22, David writes that this king is actually going to be forsaken by God. He's going to be tortured and abandoned. He's going to be surrounded by evil people. He's going to be put to death. He's going to be poured out like water. His bones are going to be taken out of joint. His heart is going to melt like wax. He's going to cry out to God for deliverance. You have to start to think, who could this king be that is at once glorious and mighty and all-powerful? and lowly, and like a servant for his people, and put to death like a criminal. Who could possibly fit this profile of a king? Well, the second story of humanity actually does start in a cave. A cave used as a stable by the mountaineers of the uplands around Bethlehem, who still drive their cattle into these holes and caverns at night. It was here that a homeless couple had crept underground with the cattle when the doors of the crowded caravans and inns had been shut in their faces. And it was here, beneath the very feet of the passerby, in a cellar, under the very floor of the world, that Jesus, the King, was born. This is the paradox of Christianity. That Jesus, like David, is a king unlike any king that we would have expected. And yet, he is the king that we've always longed for and needed. Jesus comes in, and if you were going to write a script of what the king of the universe would be like, it would have none of the things that the the stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have. It It would be nothing like that. You'd maybe put him in a line of honorable people. Or maybe you'd put him in a palace because he was born into a royal family. But instead, Jesus has very suspect origins and lineage. He's not born in a palace. He's born in a hole in the ground. And I'm sorry to most of our nativity sets, but this is don't think stable as in like really kind of a nice stable, like, you know, the Marriott of stables that Jesus was able to find in Bethlehem. This was a dirty, forgotten hole in the ground where animals slept to keep warm in the winter. He's not somebody who's admired. He's somebody who is sought to be killed the moment that he is born. In fact, it's the perfect way that God loves to tell stories. Glory to ruin to redemption. 
the glorious king of all the universe, comes in the humble form of a baby. And his life is characterized not by honor, but by rejection, by people looking over him to the point that he is falsely accused, killed on a cross, left for dead. But then he rises from the dead. He's the king of the universe, born in a stable, laid in a manger, but crowned with honor and glory at the right hand of the Father. The hands that hold the universe together were too small and weak even to reach out and pet the little lambs near his manger. The voice that spoke the universe into being was now resigned to desperate cries for food and comfort. The Almighty God, the immortal, eternal Son who would die on a cross. There's no other story like this in history. So we look at the king that David is awaiting, and this is part of the reason that people missed him when he came. It was hard to see how somebody could really embody all that they were waiting for, but it's a challenge for us now to say, what kind of king are we waiting for? What kind of king are we waiting for? And as I conclude, let me give you just three things to think about that David shows us as he awaits a true and greater king. One of the things that this psalm tells us is this isn't just a king who will make us happy. This is actually a king who has the power to make us holy. See, what happens in this psalm is there's an indictment in this psalm. Who is it that could stand before the Lord on their own merits? See, the, the, the problem for us is not that we need a great administrative leader to just whip things into shape in the world. The problem is not that we need a great conquering king who can get rid of our enemies and make sure that we're at peace. The problem is we need a king who can actually come and do something inside of us because the greatest problem for us is internal. The greatest problem for us is that we find ourselves in a sinful condition to where we, like David, would say, there's no chance for us to ascend the hill of the Lord, to go back up the slopes of Eden and go into the garden and be in his throne room again. Sinners can't pass through the gate. And so you've got to have a king who himself is able to go into the ancient gates and to throw open the doors and to bring a whole host of his kingdom with him. See, Jesus came as king, not just on his own accord. He came to do something with us so that we also could return to God. This king is not just interested in reigning over us, but living in us, renewing us, forgiving us, transforming us. So he didn't just come to make us happy or to give gifts throughout the kingdom. He actually came to transform the kind of people who are in his kingdom. And he did that because he isn't just here to triumph over his enemies like a normal king. He's here to die for his enemies. Jesus came to wield power in such a way that it was not for his own gain, but for the gain of the people that he truly loved. And last, he is a king who is all-powerful, but he is known for his tender love. He is known for his tender love for us. I don't think I would consider Edward VIII of England a hero in any sense, or really all that admirable, except for in this one heroic act of love. King Edward was born the heir of the greatest kingdom 
on earth. He's the firstborn of George V. He's the great-grandson of Queen Victoria. He was crowned king on January 20th, 1936. But he was in love, if you've seen the crown, with the American, Wallace Simpson. And the rap against Simpson was that she was not worthy of the love of a king. She was divorced. She was adulterous. And worst of all, she was an American. She was not British. But he loved her. And so in November of that year, it came down to a choice. Leave his throne or leave his love. And in December of that year, he announced to the world that he would be leaving his throne, abdicating his powers, getting rid of his titles for the woman that he loved. Though Edward was of questionable character in many other ways, this picture of love is as close a human representative of the kind of king Jesus really is. Jesus was born the king of heaven and of earth, the eternal son of God, but he loved you and me. And the rap on us is we are not worthy of the love of that kind of king. We have turned away from God, we've rebelled, we've been spiritually adulterous. We're from earth, creatures of the dust, not people of heaven, but he loved us. So he left his throne to come to earth for the people that he loved, high king and lowly servant, and laid down his life so that he could love us and be our king forever. And this morning, as we celebrate communion, what we are celebrating is that that king, the kind of king that David was waiting for, the kind of king we celebrate at Christmas, came and died for us. And you know, this meal is not just a ceremony meal, it is a wedding feast meal. It's the wedding feast of the one who left his throne for the one that he loved. And we celebrate that we will be with him, united with him as his bride, the church, forever. So as you come this morning and we celebrate communion together, come and celebrate a Savior who is king and at the same time left his throne for you so that you could be with him forever. What a wonderful, glorious king. Let me pray. Father, we're in awe that when you start to put it in human terms, it would be absurd, and it is absurd, for someone to do what you have done for us. So, Father, this morning as we sober our hearts for Christmas and we put ourselves back in that time of waiting and longing for our exile to end, we celebrate you as a glorious, wonderful king. And, Father, like David, we cry out that you are wonderful, you are powerful, you are loving And we give you all the honor and glory in our lives. So, Father, as we come now to your table, to this banqueting table, would you remind us of how great a cost and how great a price it was for Christ to leave his throne in heaven, come and suffer on earth, and to be raised again from the dead, redeemed and resurrected, and that we will be with him forever. Father, we thank you. We give our hearts to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and come to the table of Jesus Christ.